Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. And welcome to all of our online uh, audiences, those who are listening now with our live stream and those who are listening later on our YouTube channel or our Facebook channel. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dennis Rasmussen, who wrote Fears of a Setting Sun, uh, about how the founders of the United States weren't as optimistic about it all working out as even we are today uh, towards the end of their lives. And uh, how that proceeded with several of the founders is what we're going to be discussing along with the history of that whole period of time and why they felt that way. So welcome, Dennis, to the Commonwealth Club of California. So um, the first thing that we can talk about um, is the setting. Uh, you, you, you talk about, of course, the Constitutional Convention, and the Constitutional Convention, which is where people get their name, the founders, they had to have basically been involved in that. Um, if they didn't, uh, they were a little bit like sus suspect as founders, right? Um, even if they did a lot of other things. But uh, prior to that, the Articles of Confederation, which caused the interest in, the, in the, uh, having a constitution that worked a little bit better. And the push was how much more um, powerful a federal government can we have when we kind of prefer that the states have lots of power but we, we, we realized that these articles are not powerful enough. And then there was the sort of factions that were involved. Um, and the writing, the, the, the people who worked together, like Madison and, and Hamilton, on the Federalists, uh, then going against each other later on. So uh, just a little bit of background on setting it up before we go into the four individuals. Okay, sure. So yeah, the, one of the, the things I try to stress is the, the motives for calling the Constitutional Convention aren't quite what we, we sometimes think they are. Um, today, especially, I have to say, on the political right, we think of the, the con Constitution as trying to limit government, right? Trying to set up various checks and balances to make sure power isn't exercised tyrannically. And of course, they were trying to do that. But the, the real impetus for calling the Constitutional Convention is the fecklessness of the Articles of Confederation, right? So they're, they're, they're called the Constitutional Convention to try to build up the government, make it more powerful, stronger, more energetic, so that it can um, stand up to the state governments, which were up till then still the, the sovereign powers. Um, so to put it in too simplified of terms, these were big government guys for their day, right? Rather than small government guys who are trying to build up the government. Um, after the Constitution is ratified, um, most, even the opponents of the Constitution, pretty quickly get on board. There's a, a couple of years of relative calm, at which point everybody is feeling pretty good about how the, the new new government is going. Um, but as I try to suggest in the book, things go downhill much quicker than we're apt to remember in, in retrospect. The 1790s is a pretty um, uh, party-filled and... and um, rancor-filled, anxiety-filled decade, um, much more than we, we tend to remember it. It's, it's uh, ironic because, uh, you know, George Washington is, is thought of as uh, being uh, so above the fray that uh, nothing, you know, would ever, nobody would ever say anything bad about him or anything. And his first two or three years uh, seemed to be a little bit like that as the, as the country was coalescing, et cetera, et cetera. But even before he was reelected, um, the, the, the shots started being fired. So, and, and it's also, like, as you said, oh, oh, one little detail just crossed my mind. I thought it was so fascinating in your discussion of the competition between Jefferson and Hamilton in the cabinet of George Washington's first thing that there was a little bit of jealousy 
that Hamilton's department had more employees. Now Hamilton was in charge of treasury. Jefferson was in charge as the secretary of, was the secretary of state. You said the secretary of state had how many employees? Five employees. Five. <laughs> and treasury had? A, f- a few dozen. So sprawling bureaucracy. Yeah, sprawling bureaucracy. Exactly. And, and that was enough to make Jefferson think I should have more money in my department too. Um, really quite, uh, quite a different look. Uh, it's probably 5,000 to several dozen thousands, at least uh, by now, right? In those two departments. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, you take the whole executive branches in the millions, I believe. Yeah. 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 So, um, we're talking about that time. What did George Washington, you know, he was the first person that you deal with. He was uh, considered above the fray. Uh, his thing that made him uh, pessimistic was basically the opposite. That is that, that there would be a fray, that there would be uh, parties. So, so talk about how, how he got pessimistic. Right. So, so Washington's worry, his main worry was parties and partisanship. He, everybody at least claims to be opposed to parties, right? They're often called factions. This is just a, a stock theme of, of 18th century political discourse. But really, Washington loathes parties more fiercely and consistently and sincerely than anyone else. He thinks that partisans are partial. They're, they're um, looking to favor one group, uh, some parochial group, rather than the common good. He thinks that parties um, keep the government from operating smoothly and effectively, open the door to corruption and foreign intrigue and so forth. So from the very beginning of his career, he's, he's worried about what he calls the demon of party spirit. I use that as one of my chapter titles. Um, and so he, the, the war only convinces him further that this is true. The, the partisan bickering in the Continental Congress prevents him from getting the troops and supplies he needs. And so he is utterly convinced that parties are the bane of Republican politics, that a Republican government just can't last long. Um, if, if under with a partisan spirit, and so going into the the um, the new government, right? He's president. He's doing everything he can to try to tamp down party spirit. It seems like every one of his addresses, he says, "By the way, keep parties at bay," you know. Um, but then they emerge in his own cabinet, right under his own nose, led by Jefferson and Hamilton, um, and that's what starts the the sort of downward slide of his his faith in the the constitutional order. Well, uh, just to, to bring in another historical trend that came that happened, at least was pointed out by Adams even before the first election, was he was worried about foreign interference in American elections. Um, that the, that in this case, I'm sure France and Britain were the main uh, foreign uh, you know players. But I find it very interesting in a time when when we had this whole big you know uh, impeachment process over Russian interference in the. Uh, in the election. And we know that the Russians interfered in the 1848 election and, and, and so on and many, many different times. But you, you wrote Adams was concerned about this even before the first election took place. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, Sure. And they all were. Th- this is maybe the most consistent theme among the founders, meaning something that unites every one of them. Federalists and anti-federalists, Republicans, Federalists, um, it, to use the 90s, uh, the parties, every single one of them is where they tended to use the word foreign intrigue rather than foreign interference the way we, we have in the recent elections. But every single one of them is worried that, that France or Britain are going to step in and, and mess with our elections. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is interesting to read that in retrospect, given our, our contemporary. Yeah, it reminded me of how African countries and, and South American countries must have felt in the 60s and 70s, you know, that it's the, 
you know, foreign intrigue between the U.S. and, the, and Russia uh, are, are going to influence our local politics. Um, and so the United States was a tiny country, relatively powerless, and uh, they had just won the revolution because of the French help. But the French helped because it, it helped irritate the British. You know, it was a French-British rivalry. And so it was, we were off to the side. We weren't, we weren't at the center of what was the attention. Um, it might help um, our American foreign policy currently to remember the time when we were afraid of exactly the same thing that we caused in other countries. These worries about foreign interference really played into the partisanship that Washington fears so much, right? Insofar as Hamilton tends to side with Britain, he sees Britain as the, the bastion of stable constitutional government. They're our most important trading partner. They're, they're, they're the model to be emulated. And Jefferson is horrified by this. They're our, our recent oppressor and adversary, and you, you want to cozy up to them in foreign affairs. No, France is our natural ally, our sister republic. They fought with us in the, the uh, Revolutionary War. But then, of course, the French Revolution goes downhill pretty quickly, and, and he still is pretty devoted to it, even after the terror. And so Hamilton says, you know, you're, you're slavishly devoted to this this revolution gone awry. Um, both really fear what the what Britain or France would do um, the, a loyalty to Britain or France will do in, in the domestic sphere. Well, you, you mentioned that Jefferson and Madison begin to work together. Um, now, Madison was one of the writers of the Federalists in, in favor of the whole project, but that uh, it didn't take long, uh, they were fellow Virginians, to work together in favor of France. And you, you I think, said it was nearly treasonous activity or treasonous activity. Why don't you tell about how our founders, uh, you know, who, future presidents were basically treasonous while they were in the cabinet. Yeah, I mean, treason's a strong term, but certainly they're disloyal to Washington, right? Jefferson and Madison set up, they they invite one of Madison's college classmates, a guy named Philip Freneau, to, they give him a, a, a sinecure, basically, a, a, a meaningless job in the State Department as a translator, and he doesn't even speak foreign languages. Um, and he, they, He's they, only got five employees, and he puts one in as a... As a meaningless person, that's pretty interesting. I don't know if he counts as one of the five, but yeah, no. The, but the idea was that he would start a national newspaper and and be friendlier to the Republican cause, which he did. He was a vicious critic of Hamilton and a, a fawning admirer of Jefferson. Um, and you know, again, Washington would have seen this as an act of gross betrayal that Jefferson is in his cabinet and he's setting up and and funding a, an anti-administration newspaper. Um, and these types of activities continue, right? The, Jefferson is early on friendly towards Citizen Genet, the, the French envoy who comes and, and kind of whips up enthusiasm for the French Revolution and in violation of um, Washington's proclamation of neutrality the, in, in the fallout over the Jay Treaty. There's a number of times where, where Madison and, and Jefferson are, are bordering on disloyalty in their um, just hatred of Hamilton, basically spurring them to um, to take sides against the, the administration in which Jefferson, at least, was serving. Now, part of the reason for the fears of this intrigue and everything is because actual, you know, um, warlike actions were being taken against American shipping and stuff like that during the nineties. So, uh, you you characterize the seventeen nineties as one of the most unstable. Uh, and, and, and fraught periods of time in American history. So why don't you talk about the big uh, unsettling issues that were taking place? Well, a lot of the lack of um, 
there's a lack of sense of cohesiveness and stability just because going in, they know that Republican government has always been fragile. It had never before worked in a country even close to the size of the United States. And so they really are, are concerned that any misstep could send them hurtling toward the abyss, hurtling back toward monarchy or toward anarchy or whatever it might be. Um, and so they're really every single question gets scrutinized, right? When George Washington becomes president, should I throw parties? You know, how should I act? What should I call people? What should people call me? Every single step seems to them to, um, to the, the, the fate of Republican liberty seems to hang in the balance. Um, one of my favorite uh, lines that I quote in the book is from John Adams, where he's become vice president and he's moved to New York where the first capital was. And he's writing to Abigail saying, you know, please come live with me in New York. And he says, think no more about Braintree, about about Boston or Massachusetts for the next four years. You know, you have to come to, to New York to live with me for the next four years, assuming that is that the government lasts that long. Right. They're not even sure that the government is going to last four years. Right. When when, when they first started up. So there's just a, a much greater sense of, of uncertainty and contingency during this time that um, that we tend to remember in, in retrospect. Um, and there's lots of, of um, uh, kind of events in the 1790s cause uproars. Hamilton's financial plan, you know, causes the, the Republicans to, to melt down. Then we get the, um, the Citizens Genet, the, the stuff about the French Revolution and the worries about whether um, the French principles are going to invade the, the American heartland. This leads to the Whiskey Rebellion, which has this valence of, um, of partisanship hanging over it. The, the, some of the protesters wave tricolored flags and the like. Um, the fall to, fallout over the Jay Treaty is, is the same. Um, once Washington steps down, someone other than Washington is going to become president. This throws them into yet another, um, quite, you know, can this work without Washington at the helm? Um, and then really the big one was 1798, the, the quasi-war with France, the America's first undeclared war, um, fought mostly at sea, um, and the, the big army buildup associated with that, and then the crackdown on civil liberties and the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, the Republicans respond with at least implicit threats of secession in the Virginia and Kentucky re resolutions. So 1798 is really a high point for partisan rancor. Um, we have representatives brawling on the House floor with canes and fire pokers. Um, John Adams smuggles arms into the executive mansion, you know, in, in hopes of, you know, in, in thinking that he might need them to protect himself. So there's, it's really um, unbelievable how quickly things descend to, to that point. You, you mentioned quickly that, that uh, during the quasi-war with France, there was the concern about the heartland. So uh, why don't you explain that? Because we, we hadn't bought at that time the Louisiana Purchase. Um, so was the Louisiana Purchase like a, a that was 1803, I think, right? So that was uh, after this period of time, after the quasi-war, but maybe uh, in dealing with Napoleon and coming to some kind of uh, conclusion with him in peace, it made it possible for him to, to look to the United States and say, I need some money. How about if I sell this? But the heartland you're talking about is a really huge swath of the middle of what's now the Middle West and the Middle South. Um, and it didn't belong to us. And, and it was a French uh, possession. And so anything going on there, of course, uh, threatens the westward expansion, which was taking place. Yeah, so well, I should just say by heartland, I just mean, you know, the worry that French principles were going to invade American borders, that people were going to be setting up guillotines on, on America's streets. But no, the, the, the Louisiana that, that was the fear they were going to set up guillotines? I mean, that was the image. This is the, the kind of the high federalist Hamiltonian fear is that 
the Republicans would cooperate with the French if the two came to blows, that they, they um, are going to side with France no matter what. And so um, French principles, these, these radical principles, would lead to the same radical outcomes in America as they did in France. That, that was the Hamilton's worry. Um, of course, Washington thought they were way overblown, but that's his worry. Um, Adams uh, was a little bit more interested in in uh, sort of perks or the, the the honors of office. There was a lot of there was a lot of uh, talk, and he is, and also prior to the Constitution, there were different people who wanted, for example, uh, maybe you can lay out that that argument. They wanted the president to uh, be president for life. They wanted the senators to be senators for life. Uh, again, part of more more like like trying to create the Roman Republic over again. So why don't, why don't you talk about some of the obviously compromises all took place, but there was an attempt to make the United States government very federal, all the way to being not that much different from the Articles of Confederation. But like you were saying, everybody was on the side of making it more uh, effective or more more substantial government than it was before. So. Well, Why everybody, the extremists? At, the, at the convention, everybody was. Obviously, there were many people who were opposed to it out in the country, the people who became anti-federalists. But um, no, right. So there, there's actually a surprising number of, of delegates to the Constitutional Convention who advocate uh, that the, the president serve for life or, or during good behavior, which means basically unless impeached. Um, it's, I mean, it looks like Washington himself voted for that, the, just the way the votes worked out, that we know the Virginia delegation did vote in favor of that, and we know several of the, the delegates from Virginia didn't. So I think Washington himself did, and everybody knew he was going to be the first occupant of the office. Um, but yeah, so, so you, you started with Adams, and I think that's a, a good place to, to move with this, which is he, you know, soon after the government set up, he's very concerned to invest the, um, the executive office with the proper trappings, which everybody, not everybody worried, but Jefferson and, and the Republicans worried were um, monarchical trappings. He wanted to call George Washington um, the, the president, his highness, the president of the United States and protector of their liberties or something of the sort, right? He, he um, wanted to, the, to a certain splendor attached to the office because he thought that would make people respect the government more. He also thought that would induce people to want to serve in the government. He didn't think there were enough perks for, for to be president unless the, there was sufficient honor attached to, to the position. And so, yeah, people thought he had been corrupted by being spending so much time in Europe as the um, envoy to, to Britain and, and France and the court of St. James and in Versailles, and that he was trying to replicate it here. He saw it as replacing the lack of virtue in the American people. This was really his perennial worry is that the people weren't sufficiently dedicated to the the common good to the Republic, that they were selfish and so on. And so he thought these um, allegedly monarchical trappings would, would help to replace those. It would give people a, a reason to honor the country and a reason for people to serve their country. You know the way the way he wrote about uh, that issue about the lack of virtue in the American people reminded me a little bit of Vladimir Lenin uh, and, and his revolution, where he wanted to create this new man and, and and change the way that society operated because of that. And a few years later, he was also depressed that that the the Soviet citizens didn't turn into this new man that he was trying to create. I don't think Adams would appreciate that. Uh, I know that you would. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I mean, what I, what I suggest is what Adams was really looking for was someone like himself, right? He he spent so much time away from home, away from his family and in service to his country. And he thought more people should be like him. And and like Washington stepping down after two terms, he actually wanted to step down after one, but stepping down after two terms, which set the tone of not being president for life. Adams also made uh, a, a choice, which he knew was politically uh, damaging to him and would probably maybe not allow him to get elected again, which happened. Um, and why don't you tell that story? Because it is it is a, a story of political virtue, which he had been always talking about that he enacted himself. Okay, so this is during the, the quasi-war with France. This is the, the event that really dominates Adams' presidency. Um, the one and only time in his life that he was ever a popular figure, meaning that people really admired him and adored him, was in the wake of the XYZ affair, the XYZ scandal. So this is a scandal that Talleyrand, the, the French foreign minister, demands bribes of the American envoys to even enter into negotiations. And they reveal this, and, and the, there's a big anti-French uproar back in the United States. And, you know, Adam stands up to them and, and this makes him wildly popular. Um, and, and this is it's in this context that the Alien and Sedition Acts are passed. So it, it's not, it doesn't all go well for, for Adams or, or for the Federalists. But Adams decides that ultimately, you know, he needs to, to look past this affront and he sends another peace delegation to France. Um, this just absolutely stuns his fellow Federalists. He gets death threats from members of his own, own party um, that he would send de a delegation to France despite the, the, the insulting treatment that the last set of, of diplomats had been shown. Um, and he makes the decision unilaterally. Not even Abigail knows it's happening by the time he, he announces it. And this really deflates the drumbeat for war that Hamilton has been uh, uh, encouraging. He, he um, has been trying to fan the flames, um, but it really pre prevents a war that he knows America can't really win, is in no business fighting. Um, but this splits the Federalist Party, right? Now Hamilton and the so-called high Federalists are opposed to Adams. Hamilton writes this unbelievable screed against Adams, and he ends up losing the election to, to Jefferson. So it certainly would have been in his interest to go to war, to, to rally his party behind him, and maybe the country behind him in, uh, against this common adversary. But he decides, no, this is the wrong thing for the country. And so he says, toward the end of his life, he says, this is the thing I want on my gravestone, that I took on responsibility for peace with France in the year 1800. This was the most meritorious thing I ever did in my life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it has a good reason to make that choice. Uh, at, at personal cost, he did a, a very clever thing. And uh, Hamilton, uh, as you said, seemed to be a, a pretty much a warmonger for his own personal glory at, at the time. Um, the way he, he wanted to you know, be general of, of this army that he was putting together. Yes. Yeah, so he, in, in, during the quasi-war, he tries to use the fl flames of, of uh, kind of war hysteria, to fan the flames of war hysteria, to build up this new army that he's going to head. And this is one area where, you know, Washington really shows bad judgment. Washington agrees to serve as the, um, the you know, the, the titular head of this army, but he says, I'll, I'll never take the field unless and, and, until and unless it's absolutely necessary. My second in command will be the, the effective commander in the meantime, and I want Hamilton for the position, Washington says to Adams. Adams hates Hamilton. He, he despises Hamilton and, and wants someone else for the position. Washington effectively forces his hand by saying, well, I'll resign if you don't put Hamilton in, which is an act of insubordination that he would have never tolerated when he himself was president. So this really isn't Washington's finest hour either. 
But then Hamilton has these really extravagant plans. He, he, he devotes so much attention to, you know, the officer's uniforms and the proper length of a marching step. He really thinks a war with France is coming, that somehow Napoleon is going to get on his ships and cross the Atlantic and, and invade the country, and that he's going to be ready to square off against him. Um, but then he also kind of starts dreaming about using this new army to, well, maybe we'll bring it down to Virginia and we'll, we'll put down the, some of the opposition in Virginia, meaning the, the Republicans in Virginia. Maybe we'll invade South America. We'll, we'll you know, take over the whole Western Hemisphere. He has these really grandiose plans, especially once he's no longer kind of under Washington's watchful eye. Um, his plans just get more extravagant and more alarming. It's, you know, he's tr the, the Republicans always thought of Hamilton as wanting to be a modern day Caesar, and he, he seemed to want to prove them right during this, this episode. Well, a lot of your book kind of shows that, that when they were all working together and, and, and uh, under each other's influence, that things were moderated. And when they each kind of split off and started their own thing, factions and moving forward, that, that, uh, they're, they're, uh, Less than uh, ideal angels uh, were the ones who were uh, giving them their their uh, evidence to move forward, go in this direction, go in that direction. Um, For sure. All or, or, once, no, once Washington is no longer there to, to kind of manage the helm and, and to keep everybody in line, things start going off the rails pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting about the election, the 1800 election that Adams uh, did not win um, is and I think you have to kind of give the context too. The elections weren't uh, popular elections, but they were uh, at, at the uh, state legislature level. Jefferson and Burr end up in a tie. I think that to, to try to break the tie took thirty-four votes, something like that. Um, and the, to me, the irony is Aaron Burr was supposed to be his vice president, Jefferson's vice president. So why didn't he step aside when they were the ones that were tied? Uh, did he suddenly say, oh, I could be president myself? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Burr would do <laughs> almost anything yeah. to, to, to get into power. <laughs> but I think it's worth sitting to see. I mean, the election of 1800 is just the nastiest. I mean, we think our elections, you know, the, the mudslinging is, is unseemly, and it is for sure. But the, the election of 1800 the the things the two sides say, say about one another, right? If Jefferson gets elected, he's an atheist. He's going to, you know, th there's going to be no more morality. Your wives are going to be raped in the streets, right? I mean, just the, the world can't survive with this man in the executive office. Nothing will work as it once was. And similarly on the other side. And so it's a really a nasty, rancorous election, um, in part because of the split within the Federalist Party. Again, Hamilton publishes this screed against Adams um, and, and kind of splits the, the Federalist support. Um, Jefferson ends up pretty much eking out a win, thanks in part to Burr. Burr kind of um, successfully manages the elections in New York City and, and gets a, a narrow win in New York, which was the, the swing state at the time. Um, and so, but they end up in this electoral tie because at this point, um, the members of the Electoral College cast two votes, but they don't designate one for president and one for vice president until after the 12th Amendment, which was passed in response to this, this mess of an election. And so all the Republican electors cast one vote for Jefferson, one for Burr. They end up in this accidental tie. And then the, the election is thrown into the House of Representatives, which is a lame duck Federalist led House of Representatives. So we've got the Federalists deciding who the next Republican president is going to be. And so Burr kind of figures, 
hey, maybe these Federalists, they see Jefferson as their great enemy. Maybe they'll, th- they'll see that I'm more flexible, I'm more adaptable, and they'll prefer me. Maybe I can become president. And there's all kinds of backroom machinations. Um, eventually, um, the, I think it's the 36th ballot that, that, um, that ends up going for Jefferson, which was obviously the elector's intent, right? Uh, um, and so uh, Burr was essentially persona non grata within the administration from that point forward. It was pretty clear that, you know, he should have stepped down and his not doing so cost him, um, you know, a renomination for the vice presidency, at least. Yeah. Right. So he was vice president, despite of the fact that he'd put this up. I mean, because that that was he got elected for that. The the uh, so the Electoral College was exactly even. And in the House of Representatives, they don't have to go by that. And as you said, they were Federalists. So who were they deciding between on all those 34 ballots? Burr, Jefferson, just those two, and just they were always two, tied? Two. So they had, and they, they were always they were, tied. Were, so it tied both in the Electoral College and in the House. Well, in the House, they were voting by state. So it, it wasn't voting by representative. It, the, the, each state, legisl- each state um, contingent was, was voting as a state contingent. And so the states were split until I forget who it was who, who ended up um, kind of caving on the 36th ballot. But in the meantime, there were all kinds of um, rumors about, well, is Jefferson going to make this deal? Maybe he'll agree not to oust too many Federalist office holders if, if they, they go for him. So there's all kinds of, of backroom machinations, but it takes 36 votes for the, the split to be resolved. So – you, this is just an, an aside, but in your epilogue, I'm, I'm moving to the end for just a second. In your epilogue, you you, you say, uh, this democracy has worked very, very well, uh, much better than our founders have expected. Because who would imagine at this time that there could ever be an armed insurrection uh, in, in, in the country uh, or any kind of activity on the floor of the Congress that would uh, be like the Canians and stuff like that? And then, of course, on January 6th, you got a combination. I'm sure you'd already written the epilogue because uh, your book came out. You got a combination of those two things. Well, how did that make you feel about it? I mean, I, I just thought that was so fascinating that you you read this will never happen. And there it was. You know, the, that's a good, good question. And let, let, so let me set the context. So um, the, the epilogue, I, I tried to say, you know, what about what what should, what should we take away from this this fact that almost all the founders ended up disillusioned with what they wrought. And I think there are reasons for, for pessimism today and reasons for optimism. And I tried to, you know, as a typical academic, I do the on the one hand, but on the other type thing in the, the epilogue. But when I'm doing the other hand, right, when I'm doing the, the case for optimism, I say, well, look, how, you know, however appalling the state of American politics might be today, and it is appalling, appalling it was worse during the founding, right? When our beloved founders governed the nation, there was widespread chattel slavery. Um, we routinely massacred indigenous tribes. Um, there were constant threats of secession and civil war and so on and so forth. I, I document or suggest the various ways that, that the situation might've been worse during the, you know, the, the reign of the founders. And one of the things I say is that political violence was is less common today And here I was referencing especially the Whiskey Rebellion, where you have thousands of armed protesters marching on an army outpost in in opposition to attacks. You have representatives brawling on the the floor of the House of Representatives with canes and fire pokers. And we just generally don't see that today. And then, as you say, of course, January 6th comes and we have an attack on the Capitol. Um, I'll tell you what, I actually um, asked the the copy editor of the book or the the production manager of the book, to leave it open, I was supposed to send in the final proofs the week before the presidential election. 
And I said, you know, can I keep it open another week? Can I just see what happens and make sure this election, you know, doesn't descend into the chaos that, that so many people were fearing? Um, and obviously it was a mess. And, and I, I had sent it in November, long before January 6th. Um, so I, I was worried about, <laughs> worried about that in November. Um, I'll still say I... I, I I think my point still stands. I, I still think political violence is less common today, but that is a, a pretty sobering reminder that, uh, you know, it's not all in the past. It's not all in the past. So uh, you mentioned in your, your summary there uh, one really big issue that you cover really well, which is chattel slavery uh, being part of it. Um, and I think I'd like to focus for a little while. Uh, we have your questions, by the way, that are coming in, and we'll be getting to them in just a second for the audience. Um, but let's talk about how it was seen one of the things that you mentioned is Jefferson's, I think it was Jefferson's fear of a race war where the the whites basically, if, if, if uh, the slaves were freed, that the whites would exterminate the Africans. Um, or, you know, obviously uh, they were afraid for their own lives too, but that there would be an extermination. And I was wondering if that fear was partially based on the fact of the fact that we were already exterminating the Native Americans um, and therefore... That was sitting in the background. Now, that's pretty early for the extermination of the Native Americans, but, but we've been pushing them and, and, and pushing them out of the country already. So maybe how the slavery and, and the Native Americans uh, and the way that that history was going and the different attempts that those, the founders made at different times to, to ameliorate this problem, which they all recognized was a problem, and to make it go away over gradually over time, which is the way they thought it should, it should be dealt with. Why don't you talk about what they did? Because a lot of times people say they owned slaves. They, they didn't know what they were doing. Um, and and uh, they're reprehensible people. But they actually had this on their agenda and they didn't make it work. So, Okay. So the, the broader question is, you know, what to do about this massive injustice, which they all knew it was, right? They all were well aware that this was a, an evil of, mag of huge magnitude. Even the, the slaveholders among them knew, knew that this was a problem. Um, it's hard to speak about them as a group because, of course, they have different views. So I'll take Jefferson since he's the, the one who we focus on most when this question comes up and I, I focus more on in the book. Um, he's convinced that um, slavery is wrong, that slavery should put up, be put on a, a gradual uh, um that there should be a gradual emancipation plan, but also that colonization is necessary, that the freed enslaved people need to be sent to Africa or the Caribbean or someplace, you know, frankly, far away from him. Um, and he, and so this is really to, to the beginning of your question about the, the fear of a race war. He fears, I mean, he's a racist, even by the standards of his day, he's a, 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 has deep seated racism toward black people. And he thinks that black people and white people just simply could never live together peacefully. That if the, the enslaved people are freed and not sent to live elsewhere, that there's going to be constant conflict. And he thinks that if this happens um, by political fiat, all of a sudden, rather than in the gradual way that he's recommending, that there would be a, a race war. And he basically says, you know, whatever white people can get out of the South quickest, they're the ones whose lives are going to be saved. He, he's, he really is um, scared about what the um, too quick of action on the slavery question could could bring. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, that in uh, Virginia, towards uh, after his presidency, he didn't do much uh, to try to change. And during his presidency, he didn't either. 
But at the time, uh, when he was working with Virginia and under the Articles of Confederation, everything that he proposed different plans for eliminating slavery from Virginia, right? Yes. So early in his career, during the 1780s, he has a pretty good record, politically speaking. I mean, personally, he still enslaves hundreds of people back at, at Monticello. But politically speaking, he has a decent record, right? He tries to put a really harsh denunciation of, of slavery and the slave trade in the Declaration of Independence. Um, he tries to come up and with a And who voted it out? So it, me, it was interesting. You, you, I, I, I had never read that before. He put into the Declaration of Independence, into the draft, that Prince, uh, that King George was responsible for our slave trade and the slavery, and, and, and that that was a terrible thing he did. But obviously, some people, you know, said you can't put that in. Sure. So the delegates from the Deep South just would have never signed on with that. And it, of course, in some ways, it's patently absurd. He, he was more or less suggesting that the king was responsible for foisting slavery on these liberty-loving Americans who would have never wanted. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, that, it, it's absurd what the, the argument he made. But it was really a, a harsh condemnation of, of the injustice of slavery that he tried to put into the country's founding document. Um, as you suggested, he, tried, he drew up a couple of different plans that would have gradually abolished slavery in Virginia in his home state of Virginia. Um, he also, I, I think in some ways, an even bigger move was a bill that he submitted to, or at least helped to draft for the Confederation Congress in 1784 that would have bid, forbid slavery in all the Western territories, both North and South of the Ohio River. Um, and this is really the main point of contention that led to the Civil War, right? If, if that, and it came within one vote of passing, if that had passed, that would have really changed the trajectory of, of American history. Um, so that was, he, he made some really consequential moves to try to condemn and limit slavery early in his career. As I suggest, it just, his, his record becomes much less impressive over time. He basically stops thinking about the issue or talking about the issue in the 1790s in the midst of his fights with Hamilton and the Republicans. As president, he does very little. And then in his retirement, he does the worst of all. He essentially encourages the expansion of slavery. He does not just nothing, but much, much worse than nothing. He lends his name to the powerful force, his powerful name to the forces trying to expand slavery. Yeah, an interesting um, evolution uh, of of uh, process, and and also um, his fears about that seem to have continually increased as well as he acted in the way that he was acting. His fears were increasing as well. So um, I thought it was very fascinating all the different details about how many people by the 1820s, especially you know leading up to the Missouri Compromise and and so on, at that time thought that the slavery was going to create a civil war in the United States and that it, it took another 40 years, but that they, they could see that it was inevitable, basically. Right. I mean, Jefferson's uh, letters basically predict the path of the civil war. He, he says to a number of different correspondents, once you have a line drawn across the country where there's a deep moral divide between the, the two sides of that line. That line's never going to be obliter obliterated. It's, it's, it's going to be etched deeper and deeper um, that, that um, he, he all but predicts that the, the civil war is coming. And this is really where you get these really dire pronoun pronouncements of, of you know, the, the fate of the American Republic from a guy who had been so optimistic for so much of his career. Now he's constantly saying, you know, I, 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 my only consolation is that I'm not going to be there to weep over the the loss of this republic. Everything we fought for in 1776 was in vain. Um, he's he, uh, he really his disillusionment is is all the more striking given how optimistic he had been for for so much of his life. 
And a lot of people are aware of this, but both Adams and Jefferson, the second and third president, died on the same day, which was July 4th, 1826, which was the exact 50th anniversary of the uh, Declaration of Independence uh, official date. Uh, although you said Adams preferred July 2nd and May 15th for personal reasons. Um, but one thing you kind of indicate is that, is that Jefferson almost shouldn't have lived that long, that he was just, he wanted to live to that 50th anniversary and he died right on the day. I find that was a fascinating little aside. Yeah, um, no, he, I mean, he, he, he was really, um, he's at this point, he's taking laudanum constantly to, to try to, you know, he's got just debilitating debilitating pain from an inflamed prostate, but he's just determined to live to see the 50th anniversary of his, his beloved declaration of independence. And he writes a very, what's become a pretty famous letter lauding the, the greatness of the American Republic and so forth. Um, and it, it seems to fit in with the early Jefferson, the optimistic Jefferson. What I try to suggest is that this, this famous letter is in some ways a, um, a last minute flip-flop. He had spent the past decade just bemoaning the fate of the country and saying how the, 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 it was a failure. It would never last. Just months before he writes this famous letter, he's talking about the, the, the lowering of our horizons. I can't believe that freedom didn't even outlast us, the founders. Um, and then somehow we, we get by the July 4th, maybe he's just putting on a good face for his fellow citizens. I'm not sure what it is, but he, he writes this famous optimistic letter at the, the very end of his life after the prior decade had been one of, of doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. And, and you uh, say that Adams stayed true to form and wrote an ambivalent letter for the same uh, celebration uh, where he, he, he basically did not do what they all wanted, which was to cheer the whole thing on, but, but you know, wrote not totally pessimistic, but it, certainly ambivalent. Right. I mean, so Adams is an interesting case, right? So he, his disillusionment start, sets in really early by at least the 1780s, if not before. So before even the Constitution, he's pretty certain that people aren't virtuous enough. There's not enough civic virtue in America to make a Republican government work. And so his disillusionment lasts, you know, 50 years. It's a half century long. So by the end, he's maybe not quite as bitter, quite frankly, as some of the others were by the very end of their lives, because he'd gotten used to the disappointments. And so by the end, you know, the War of 1812 actually heartens him a little bit. Um, he, so his trajectory of disillusionment isn't one of simply, you know, starting out optimistic and going downhill from there. He actually becomes slightly more optimistic at the very end than he had been for, for much of the kind of intervening decades. Well, we can't ignore two, two things before we get to the questions, which is one, uh, the secession, uh, we don't spend too much time on it, but the secession movements, uh, one way that the leaders of New England wanted to deal with the fact that the South was intractable on the slavery issue was to secede from the Union. I, I found that interesting. Instead of the South seceding, the North was going to secede. Um, and in addition to that, we, of course, have to talk about Madison um, and, and, and his whole approach. So why don't you tell us a little bit about secession and then, and then give the overview on Madison and what depressed him. Okay. Um, well, actually, he was less depressed. So, so the quickly on the secession, right? So, when you read the history of these these years, it sometimes seems like every event leads one group or another to say, "That's it. I'm fed up. I'm out." Right? That that one, you know, whether it's you know starting as early as Hamilton's financial program, just a couple of years after the the Constitution's ratified, but then especially things like the Louisiana Purchase. Um, the the um, embargo act, I guess, but the the War of eighteen twelve leads to a wellspring of of separatism in in New England. Um, later on, the nullification crisis. It seems like every event leads one group or another to to um, threaten the breakup of the union. 
Um, so Madison is the, the odd figure out in the book. So I, I devote three chapters each to Washington, Hamilton, Adams, and Jefferson laying out their fears about America's future and their disillusionment, the disillusionment of their, their early hopes for, for the American Republic. Madison outlives them all. He's a, a sickly hypochondriac, but he outlasts them all by 10 years. He lives 10 years past Jefferson and Adams. Um, and yeah, Washington so lives, thought he was old. Sorry, Washington thought he was old in his 60s, but uh, a couple of the guys lived into their 80s. In fact, three of them, right? Yes, that's right. So it wasn't just that everybody died in their 60s back then. No, many did, but yes, no, the Adams and, and, and Madison especially lived unusually long for that, that age. Um, but yeah, so, so Madison lives so long. He lives almost to well into to Andrew Jackson's second term as president. Um, I'm going to be honest, when I set out to write this book, I just assumed Madison was going to be disillusioned too. I, I mean, I knew that there's some late letters, especially about the nullification crisis that, you know, there was some moments of, of gloom and I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll write this book about how these five major founders were disillusioned. As I spent more time on Madison though, I realized he just wasn't. He, he had moments of gloom, like I said, during the nullification crisis above all, um, but he always returned to his habitual optimism. And so he ends up being the, you know, the proverbial exception that proves the rule, the one who wasn't. And so I spend just a couple of chapters at the end exploring why he kept the Republican faith when his, his compatriots didn't. And what were the, I, I liked your conclusion. The, it was a, mostly a personality conclusion in a way. Why don't you explain that? Because we're talking about a large number of old men. Uh, there's, there's a tendency to be pessimistic uh, and that the new generations will not carry on their work, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that element to everybody else's, but, uh, but this was slightly different. For Madison, you mean? Yeah, well, so partly I do think it was just temperament. Uh, he's much more even keeled than, than the other figures and, and, didn't tend to let things get to him, even when, say, the Capitol is burned down while he's president. He just kind of serenely goes goes about his way, um, and so I think the in 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 you know this this calmness and steadiness I think prevents him from growing just as disillusioned. There are another a number of other factors that I point to as well, though. One being he just had lower expectations of politics than the others did, right? He didn't expect, like Washington, that everybody would be a disinterested, you know, put, put uh, you know, the common good ahead of party. He never expected, like Adams, that people would, you know, subordinate their, their private interests for, for the common good. He didn't expect or, or hope, like Hamilton did, that the United States would be this magnificent, you know, brilliant government that would play this grand part on the world stage like the world European monarchies did. Nor did he expect, like Jefferson, that we would have these, you know, yeoman farmers conducting the politics of their local ward and, and engaging it. You know, um, he just expected a lot less, and, and that made him less liable to be disappointed. Um, and then th there are a couple others, but I'll just point out one other final one, which is just that he lived so long, right? The, the very fact that he lived to 1836, um, he he had seen the Constitution, he had seen the Union survive quite a lot. He had seen it survive the Alien and Sedition Acts and the Missouri Crisis and the War of 1812. He had seen it survive all these things. And so, you know, he thought if it can survive these things, it can survive more. That the, the longer the nation endured, the more durable it seemed to him. Um, and so this is one thing I suggest in the epilogue is, well, if he seems reassured that it, the Constitution and the Union had lasted 50 years, Maybe the fact that it's lasted for over 230 years should give us some measure of comfort. Yeah. So now let's talk about the president for just a second. Which one of the founders got their way the most? 
Uh, we're now here 230 years in. Which one would have said, that's what I was expecting to happen over time, or that's what I wanted to happen over time, was for the United States to become what it has become? I don't think any of them got their way completely. I, I think maybe the closest is Hamilton, right? Hamilton wants the United States to be a great power, militarily and economically a great power, which it is. He wants a very powerful executive, which it is. He wants flourishing commerce, you know, capitalist order, which we have. Um, that's why, you know, we have the popular Broadway musical about him, you know, that depicts him as the, the kind of uh, visionary who foresees what America is going to be. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, that said, he was aghast at how um, uh, how weak what he, in his view, the federal government was far too weak and, and far too small d democratic or popular, far too responsive to people's whims. And there, I think he would still be worried, right? He would, I think he'd still be worried about the difficulty that the government has, that Congress has in passing major legislation on on virtually any topic. Um, he would be aghast at how continually politicians pander to the people. Um, so even he, I don't think, would be entirely at home. But he's the closest. The closest. He's the closest. Okay, good. Well, we have, as I said, lots and lots of questions uh, have come in. Um, so let's go to the audience questions. Uh, first question that came in was from George Steffner. I read that Jefferson expected a revolution every generation. Is this true? Whether he expected one, he he hoped for one, right? So he was, yes, he, um, in fact, at one point, he wrote a letter to Madison um, saying that all constitutions and all laws should expire every 19 years, that um, the the present generation should be sovereign over itself. We shouldn't be bound by the dead hand of the past. So we do, it's a very enlightenment thing to do. He sits down and he calculates a generation last 19 years. So when after 19 years, when the majority of the lawmakers are dead, their laws should die with them. We should form new constitution for ourselves. So we, we're truly governing ourselves. But at the very least, he wants, you know, as he says, a little rebellion now and th then is a good thing. Is a very famous line of his, as I say, as long as it's not enslaved people who are doing the rebelling. That, that very much frightens him. But he, you know, he sees something like Shays' Rebellion and he is entirely um, uh, uh, nonplussed about it. He, 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 it doesn't bother him in the least. It throws... Hamilton and Madison and, and Washington, um, it gives them fits. And, and this is part of what leads to the calling of the Constitutional Convention. But Jefferson very much takes it in stride. He, he thinks um, that this is a way to check power is to have the people revolting now and then. Yeah. So he, he was sort of the Trotskyite in the, the uh, to go back to the analogy. The permanent when, revolution one. When you read what he says about the French Revolution, you, you know, that's an exaggeration, but maybe not by much. There's a f very famous letter, a very scary letter. It's called the Adam and Eve letter, where Jefferson says he, he's told about the, the um, chaos in France and the number of people being killed on the Parisian streets. And he basically says, don't, don't tell me about that anymore. That hurts my feelings. I like the French Revolution. Don't, don't tell me bad things about it. But then he says... Even, no matter how bad the violence gets, even if it got to the point where there was just one Adam and Eve left in every country, but they were free, it would be better than it is now, which is just a crazy thing to say. I mean, that is a, you know, that's as much as, you know, not even Trotsky <laughs> would go that far. And obviously, I mean, this is exaggerated for a fact, surely, right? But it's, I think, also a sign of the, the fanaticism that Hamilton always saw in him. I mean, I do think there's, there's some of that there. Yeah. That takes give me liberty or give me death a little bit further. It's like give, yes. me, give me liberty and give everyone else death if they're not going to agree to it. Um, so here's another one. I read initially some European royal family members were interviewed to be king here. Is that true? 
You ever heard of that? The, you know, there were always rumblings about that. I don't know that that was ever true. The, the, um, the Republicans were always accusing the Federalists of wanting a monarchy, of wanting to institute the British system in America and to make uh, George Washington the, the, the new King George. Um, and so there were always rumblings of, you know, was one of the, the royal sons going to become the king or whatever. To be honest, I don't know that that ever, you know, it was never seriously entertained to my knowledge. Yeah, yeah, gossip more than more than a serious yeah. attempt. Uh, here's another, uh, you know, background question about this one's about Benedict Arnold. Um, Hamilton helped sideline. Did Hamilton help sideline Benedict Arnold? And do you think that that contributed to his turning against the the, the whole process? To be honest, I don't know. I don't. I don't know the whole backstory of that. Um, I will say that I, one of the things, I, the only time I think Benedict Arnold comes up in the book is um, you, you said very early on in our our discussion about how um, Washington was, you know, sacrosanct. Nobody would think of of criticizing him during while he was. Uh, uh, during the first few years of his presidency, but then by the second, the end of his second term, the Republican press goes after him. One of the things they say is that he intended to betray the Patriot cause during the the Revolutionary War, but Benedict Arnold just beat him to the punch that, you know, this kept him from from being the the traitor that that he had intended to be. (laughs) That's a different view on George Washington, isn't it? It shows shows, uh, uh, a little bit about how the the press uh, at the time can always be extremely inaccurate. Oh, I mean, the, the, the things they said about, you know, that, that Washington was a, a womanizer and a blasphemer and, and, you know, Alexander Hamilton was his illegitimate son. I mean, the, 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 the Alexander was George Washington's, lies. George Washington's yeah. illegitimate son. Correct. Yeah. That, that, that was the, the insinuation. I mean, so that, you know, the press of the 1780s, uh, today's fake news has nothing on them. That's for sure. So did they say that Hamilton was born in, in, in Africa or <laughs> no, but Hamilton was born in, in, in a Caribbean Island, right? Yes, so, yes. Yeah. So it'd be pretty hard for Washington to visit there. Yep. Um, but that, that, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of fact probably never got in the way, right. Of, 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 right. Uh, the, the, uh, observation. Um, another question. This one's from Gary Landsman in the house's deliberations on the, uh, uh, election between Jefferson and Burr, was there any consideration given to the slavery issue? In other words, was that, a part of the negotiations about uh, who you should vote for? Was Burr trying to play that card? Um, to my knowledge, no. I mean, it's it's hard to believe in retrospect. Slavery wasn't a dominant issue on the national scene, even by 1800. It's really not until after the Louisiana Purchase, after the, the question of what's going to happen in the territories comes in. So the Missouri crisis is really the first time that it bursts onto the national scene in a serious way. So, you know, it's always there in the background of the debates, but by 1800, it's not a, a dominant political issue. Not, not something that would, people would use as chips. Uh, now, here's a bold question from Laura Smith. Are we going to have a civil war now? <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful that we won't. I, 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 don't, I don't predict the future, but I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. Yeah, Laura doesn't realize historians will never talk about the future. Um, it's it's one of the and I'm things. I'm a political theorist, and I still won't talk about. And the you still you, you have to sign on to that when you when you when you get the jobs at the universities, right? You can't, can't talk about the future. Uh, Jim Lilienthal, uh, question: What do we know about the internal sentiments of Washington with regard to the prevailing dichotomies, such as the Federalist Republican and the tilt towards Britain and France? So the two parties. Uh, it, it's a good point uh, to to uh, repeat here, Jim. Uh, that is the point that the Republicans were siding with France and the Federalists were siding with England as their model for which country to follow in, in doing things. And, and then again, 
not only just as a model, but do you do you then support that country and their intrigues in our country against something else? Uh, again, to bring it to the current time, in the world today, China has kind of try, is trying to demonstrate that their method of running their country is more effective on some big issues than our method. And that is going to be tested in other countries around the world and, and, and trying to pursue it. So here we're the small country, again, as we talked about earlier. And we have two different factions. One's in favor of France, one's in favor of Britain. And because of that, uh, they prefer the system that they have, the political system. So what did, what did Washington, Washington just wanted to stay out of all that and thought that that was not Right. C certainly, yes. He wanted to stay out of, which isn't to, this is a famous theme of his farewell address, is to stay uh, stay out of entanglements with foreign countries. Um, the, the famous term entangling alliances actually comes from a Jefferson speech, not from the farewell address. But I, I think that captures well enough what Washington wanted to avoid. So what he wanted wasn't sort of head in the sand isolationism, but rather, um, I call it engaged independence. That is to say, commercial ties, diplomatic ties with lots of countries, but no permanent alliances um, with, with other countries like with Britain or, or with the France. Um, more generally, Washington, um, there's debates among historians about whether he was in fact above party, a president above party as he aspired to be and claimed to be, or whether he was in fact a partisan federalist in all but name. What I end up saying is for the first term, at least for the first many years, he was I think reasonably above party by the end of his second term, I think he, he drifted into the federalist camp. So he, he, even he succumbed to the partisanship that he found so, so problematic by the end. All right. Um, here's a comment, not a question from Herbert Bourne. They were all criminals. We never won the revolutionary war. Britain got tired of fighting. Uh, so the question is, do you think, do you think that, uh, <laughs> that we only won because Britain got tired of fighting or do you think that, that the, uh, influence of the French and the other wars that were going on between the French and the British were more, more valuable than not just being tired. Um, yeah, the, uh, this isn't my, the, the military side of things isn't my area of expertise, but no, it seems like Washington had this sensible strategy, which is we just have to outlast them. As long as we have an army in the field, we win. Um, is we don't have to beat them. And so he, he realized that and implemented it. Uh, another similar comment was uh, British generals bailed out of the revolution because we slaughtered them by cheating. That is, we shot the officers first, which was considered a huge no-no. And finally, a sniper killed one of their best generals. Is that, uh, I mean, it's not, it's military history, but is that an accurate, uh, we, did, we didn't, I mean, I know we've, we, we did a, um, a guerrilla warfare uh, was, was engaged in by the American side, and we didn't all line up uh, in, and march towards them and have them shoot us and us shoot them in the time art and fashion of European wars at the time. Um, but was there a bailout by the British generals because of that? To be honest, I can't tell you. I, it sounds plausible, but I don't know. All right. And here's a hard one to question, uh, hard one to answer, although there are some good answers for it. Sandra Burke asks, what, if anything, was the role of their wives, of the founders' wives? So the, you know the, that Adams' uh, wife was, was, was a, a, an important. Right. So Abigail certainly played the biggest role of all of them. So Martha Washington was mostly in the background. Um, Thomas Jefferson's wife died when he was still fairly young before any of the stuff that we're talking about happened. Um, Hamilton's wife didn't, uh, didn't play a major role um, in, in his politics or in his life. Abigail did. I mean, Abigail was Adams's, not just his best friend, but his closest advisor, his closest political advisor. Um, 
often for good, sometimes for ill. I mean, she was more zealous in favor of the alien and sedition hex than, than he was. Um, so it wasn't always a good thing that he followed her advice, but he did follow her advice quite a lot, and, and she was every bit his, his equal. Yeah. Well, you, you um, mentioned in the book that Adams tried to blame other people for pushing the alien and sedition acts on him when he was president. Why don't you, why don't you give that excuse? <laughs> well, yeah, no, he just said that this wasn't, and it was, I mean, the laws weren't passed by him, right? They were passed by the, the Federalist Congress in the midst of this this moment of war hysteria during the, the quasi-war. Um, now that said, he signed them into law. So he, I, I think he, he, this is one of the things for which he bears the most blame. We, we talked earlier about his his shining moment of glory, which was sending this, the, the peace delegation to France. His his moment of shame was the, the alien and sedition act. Yeah, and whether he, whether he put them into place or not, he certainly executed on them he used them uh you know he 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 got uh publishers of newspapers put in jail all that kind of stuff so uh, he 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 didn't he didn't say i'm not going to enforce that law (laughs) (laughs) because somebody else pushed it on me uh and i i want to also bring up something else that adams talked about Uh, adams talked about the inevitability of hereditary rule you know he had all these other big you know monarchs i thought that was ironic because his family actually was probably the first hereditary ruling family, and not just the two presidents, but the next two generations were very influential uh, in many different ways, coming down to Henry Adams anyway, um, at, writing at the end of the 19th century. So for that whole century, the Adams family, I mean, for the first like 120 years of the country, the Adams family was as close to a to a Kennedy or Roosevelt or, or the Bushes, you know, uh, of any other family, right? Yeah, so that was an unfortunate thing for him. So he did, um, in the early 1790s, suggest that hereditary rule would one day be necessary in America. Um, Once the the chaos, I mean, he saw elections to high office as basically fearful things, avenues of foreign influence and, and corruption and the like. And so he 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 thought that once people got fed up with um, the the all the problems that attended these elections, that at least for the presidency and, and the Senate, they would just resort to hereditary rule, which is what you know they had known from, from Britain. Um, and when I say one day, he, he said to one of his correspondents, Benjamin Rush, I'm not going to live to see this, but you may. And, and Rush was, I think, 40, 43, maybe at the time. So he foresaw this happening, you know, within a few, few decades. Um, and he at one point published this under his own name. And most of it, most of his prediction, and, and this, he wasn't saying I want hereditary rule. He was just saying we're going to land there eventually. We're going to land on these shores eventually. Um, and and the feeling of regret, he said. But nevertheless, he he most of these came in private letters. But there's one time he published this in print while he's vice president of the United States, and this causes, as you might predict, an uproar. And as you suggest, everybody knows that that John Quincy is is the kind of rising star. And so people blame him for saying, you know, that, that Adams wants to become president and then institute hereditary rules so he can pass, pass the, the, the torch down to, to his own son, um, which wasn't fair. But, you know, you could see that that would be a, a, a useful talking point for the Republicans. <laughs> Do you think his argument about why it's necessary um, isn't a, a real influence in a democracy? Because, I mean, it doesn't, it's not hard to well, it's not hard to buy the argument because the, the Bush family did it. I mean, the father was a senator of, of, of H.W., um, and then his son was the president, and then his son was the president. So that's three generations of very influential Bushes, plus the fact that, that, that uh, you know, uh, Jeb Bush uh, got close, uh, or at least looked like he was going to get close to being president, too, 
the Kennedy family, everyone just assumed no one can run against one of the Kennedys once, once JFK had been killed uh, and win uh, for a while. Um, and, and then, of course, there were the Roosevelts. That wasn't quite the same, but, you know, it was an uncle and a nephew, I think, something like that, right? So, so we, have, we have quite a few examples of families that uh, eventually get the, the Democratic voters to feel that they have a right to that office in some way, that the name works. <laughs> It is interesting. And, you know, I, I think Adams might point to it as, as evidence for, for what he was suggesting, which is, you know, that people want um, something to look up to, to some feeling that, you know, a, a regular Joe isn't going to be good enough. We, we, there's something inherent in this family that somehow they're going to be um, superior to the rest of us, that there, there's something in people that seems to, to want that bizarrely. Um, that, yeah, no, I think that's, that's something like what Adams was, was foreseeing. So the fears of the setting sun, thinking that the, the grand thing that they put their lives into as young men, basically, that, that it wasn't going to work out. Obviously, it worked out from our point of view uh, quite well. Um, so how much of their pessimism was just old age and, and, and how much of it was how chaotic their whole lives had, political lives had been because it really was a chaotic time? Well, I think there's some of both. I, so first of all, the, it's true that Washington and Jefferson didn't become disillusioned until they're fairly old men. Hamilton died as a fairly young man, right? He was still in his 40s when he was shot. And, and Adams became disillusioned when he was still quite young, he, also in his 40s. So it wasn't only old age. I think ultimately their, their disillusionment was just too durable, too well-reasoned, too um, closely connected to their greatest aspirations and their deepest fears. I, I don't think we can just chalk it up to, well, he was kind of old and depressed. Um, there is probably something to, you know, if, if you have the idealism to found a country, right, and especially to found a country on new principles that, at least in your view, have never been tried before and, and that you're doing this unprecedented world historical thing, I guess I'm not, it's not in some ways surprising that you would end up disappointed that, that it didn't quite live up to your your you know, grandiose expectations that, that you had set. Um, I was just, I, I haven't looked into it yet. I was just talking with someone the other day who suggested that the um, founders of Israel, modern Israel, um, all ended up relatively disillusioned with what Israel became um, many decades later. And, and maybe there's something to that, that just the, the, the idealism that's inherent in founding a state leads one to be disappointed later on with, you know, Madison as, as one of the few, few exceptions. Um, but it That'd is be a great follow-up book um, to do yeah, one on the, on the leaders of Israel. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, the fact that you uh, mentioned that Madison had had more reasonable expectations and so on it is almost like an advertisement, um, not for having the energy to get something started, um, but for the energy to maintain something to have slightly more reasonable expectations. And uh, certainly in dealing with the huge problems that we have today on a worldwide scale, like uh, global climate change, that kind of thing, and even this pandemic, um, that a little bit of reasonable expectations about what's actually gonna happen uh, may help us get there without as much depression. Um, yes, and to, to um, as I suggest, right, the seeing the problems that have been in inherent in the American experiment from the very beginning, you know, hopefully that makes us less surprised by these problems, but also less willing to think that they're going to be the doom of the Republic, right? If, if we've lasted 230 years with, with, you know, some of these problems, um, I, I don't, 
we, we get the, the, the end of democracy pronounced to us on a, a almost daily basis um, uh, in today's world. And I think that, you know, a little Madisonian um, uh, moderation wouldn't hurt us in those, those who were tempted to feel that way. Especially as you mentioned right at the beginning, that this is sort of unprecedented. That the only examples of anything bigger than a city-state, uh, you know, were Switzerland and the Netherlands at a certain time, you know, have been able to keep some kind of republic going. And it was all with strong city-states. So the experiment is working. And the experiment, as you mentioned, and I think that's the crucial thing for success, is we're trying to keep between the two poles of tyranny and anarchy. And if we the, the sweet spot may be right here. But as long as we're here or here or here or here, we're doing all right because we're, we're not on either pole. Um, and, and so it can be more reasonable about the outcome. Sure. And, and this is another part of Madison's, you know, realism or moderate, you know, uh, moderate viewpoint is, you know, he, he tends to take a much broader view of things. Right. Do when we look at America, do we compare it to an idealized version of what democracy could be or should be? Well, if so, we're bound to be disappointed. But I think Madison was more inclined to say, you know, he, he's a good historian, right? If you look at the other regimes throughout the world and, and throughout history, um, for all its ills, the American Republic has done reasonably well. And so if we keep that uh, that uh, kind of measuring stick in mind, we, we measure it by that more realistic standard rather than an idealistic one, then, then we're bound to be uh, you know, more satisfied with what we have, more more willing to um, accept the ills that are, are, you know, part and parcel of, of you know, democratic self-rule. On a personal level, that's almost the same as the, the, the poles of tyranny and anarchy is the realism and idealism. And if you can find the right sweet spot in there, you'll have the energy of the idealist without the uh, disappointment. Um, it's awfully useful in thinking about our own personal families that way, too. Okay, sure. Because <laughs> no, no family works out the way the ideal is in your mind. Uh, so thank you very, very much, uh, Professor Rasmussen, for joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. And uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in our 118, now 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thanks again for coming. And we look forward to that book on Israel's <laughs> Thanks very much. It was, a, it was a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.